podcast. Oh, I woke up this morning practicing something that I've been doing for about a month now, which is waking up and just saying thank you. Thank you for another day. Thank you for another opportunity. My friend was telling me that that's something that Wayne Dyer did. And for me, in the depths of sort of the pain of uh, a breakup, as well as, you know, any life transitions that we've all been through, through news that we didn't expect or just experiences that we've had, it's hard to do that. It's hard to say, oh, you know, just find the joy in it or everything's happening for a reason. And you're like, not this shit. What the hell? You know, we feel a bit dismissed when people say that to us. We can feel that way. And it's actually uh, when someone's first experienced something, not a great way to respond to them. A great way is I can't imagine what you're going through. And simply that, how do I support you? And for me, beginning the morning with thank you, no matter my state, no matter the transitions, no matter, I just feel this sense of peace and gratitude wash over me. It's a practice that I've been enjoying. And so I thought I'd share it with you, that it allows me to see the world at least through the eyes of gratitude. And then I can go on to thinking, okay, now what? Now what? Another thing that I've listened to that I wanted to share is that we get so caught in both the future and the past. You know, we get marinating in the things that have happened to us and the things that have transitioned through our lives. And then we get anxious about what is to come, a future possibility, and maybe one that we don't believe will come. And both of those pull us out of what is present, what is now, what is available. One, the past holds us hostage to it, and the future paralyzes us in a, in a way. And then we're not present to eat the full deliciousness of life, the full deliciousness of opportunity. And the science on this is that when you're in fight, flight, freeze, your vision narrows, your heartbeat increases, your blood goes to your extremities so that you can run, so that you can escape. The nervous system can't separate conflict in a relationship or within oneself from you being beside a tiger or me being beside a tiger. So our bodies don't know that difference. They're designed to save us. And when we are worried about things and stressing out about past and future, our bodies can get into that stimulated response. And so as you begin with gratitude and you practice deep breaths and meditation, if you have never done it, it's time to start doing it. If you say, I don't have time, then you need more time to do it. <laughs> you know, I say, if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate, you need an hour of meditation. And that's just the practice is this deliberate, intentional, be 1% better every day. Just change a bit. If you changed 1% a day, that's 365% a year. That's insanity. Are you kidding me? And that's why it's incrementally easy when you start with a thank you. The body slowly starts to shift into more gratitude. And what a beautiful practice we can have, especially as we come into this holiday season. So for Christmas, what I would love from you guys is if you could go to where you listen to this podcast and give it a five-star review and a written review. That really helps to get it in more people's eyes and ears. Well, I don't know how it, it would come in front of their eyes and then they'd play it and it would go in their ears. You know what I'm saying? And if you could do that, that would, I would just have so much gratitude for that. I would say thank you. So thank you for doing that. And as it is the holiday season, I know how desperately 
boundaries can be very important. So if you haven't done it yet, you want to learn more about it. Anyone can have boundaries. Boundaries just draw a circle around you and hold on to your wholeness. And they're a skill set and they can be learned. So if you want to register for my boundaries course, you can pick it up now. All you have to do is go to INeedBoundaries.com slash Mark. So go there, INeedBoundaries.com slash Mark, and register now. You can read all about what is in the course and how it works. It's two weeks long, and it is a deep dive in figuring out why you don't have any, how to get some, what they look like, and how to actually communicate them and where you need them. So if you're like, I don't know if I don't have boundaries or do have boundaries, then you probably don't have boundaries. Or I, I have boundaries. I'm independent. That's a good sign that we have walls. So there's an opportunity there. Go check that out. And this week, we shift again to a subject we haven't really covered on the podcast. I get to have one of my best friends, Connor Beaton, on the podcast this week. And we are talking about men and shadow, not strictly just men, but more so about shadow, the side of us that we don't tend to like. And we're getting to the definition of that and all those sorts of things. He shares his own journey as he has transformed and turned and faced his shadow. And I hope that through this, you are softly invited to do the same. And so much love to all of you. I'm honestly, I'm so, so grateful that we get to have these conversations and I get to have them. And Man, all the teachers I grew up with would be like, people listen to Mark on a podcast. I had to listen to him talk in class all the time. So it's great that they invented podcasts for people like me who, if there was a talking Olympics, I'd get gold. So I'm going to stop talking and let's start this episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Mark Groves Podcast. <laughs> oh man, this week is going to be a good one. I am excited to have one of my best friends on the show. We have not had the chance to do a podcast episode, which is, I mean, I got to say it's a little fucked up. I don't know why that's true, but maybe we were just waiting to have a certain conversation that we don't know we're about to have. And that man is none other than Mr. Connor Beaton. Welcome, sir. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me on the show. So Connor is um started out teaching men has man talks which is like i guess the best description is like ted talks for men i kind of found i've had the honor of speaking a couple times at it and you know create men's community a community where men are vulnerable and open up and cry and crying sexy and celebrated and all those things right <laughs> yeah yeah dig in dig into the 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 darker side of of men and masculinity all all the shit that they face well i think the beautiful thing about your life i had the honor of um being one of connor's best men when you're as good of a man as connor you need two men to you support have, you. you have to have two you have two <laughs> hands you have two eyes you have to have two best men yeah but only one wife let's just qualify that's right you have one heart you have one wife. <laughs> yeah there, there you go yeah well done that's the logic, well that's the logic. Uh, vienna if you're listening well done right that's yeah. why you married him and in a, in my toast to connor i mentioned just how he has so many paradoxes and I think what is so beautiful about your journey is that even at a very young age, you like expressed to just like opposite, like I'm going to work in construction and be an opera singer like that. I mean, I feel like YMCA is maybe the closest expression of that type of thing, but that guy never did a day of construction in his life. No, definitely not. He wore the uniform. 
<laughs> yeah, he was just a sexy construction worker. So who never swung a sledgehammer? God, there's so many places I can go with that. There's, a lot, of, there's not... a lot of sexual innuendos there that I think we shouldn't touch. <laughs> yeah, let's just go away from that. So where let's let's allow people into your story. So you were born in the worst city in Alberta. No offense to anyone <laughs> listening. That's just because we're rivals, Groves. That's it. That's uh, actually true. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I grew up in uh, I grew up in a small town outside of Edmonton uh, called St. Albert. And it's a town of like, I think now it's like 42,000 people. Uh, it's moving up in the world. And I think that, you know, you that juxtaposition that you're talking about before really came from my childhood. And, you know, my parents uh, got divorced when I was three. And my father and my father remarried uh, to my stepmom when I was five or six. My mom remarried to my stepdad when I was five or six. And when I was seven and eight, they both had a daughter. And when I was 10 and 11, they both had a son. And so I grew up between these like two complete and whole family systems that were uh, from the outside, they looked identical, right? Like the ages were the same. Yeah. Key players were the same, but the personalities, the character of each people, the identity of all the people that I grew up around were totally different. And so, you know, I was just like well-versed in duality. Hmm. That's so fascinating to feel split between those and then be split between the expressions of let's just call it masculine and feminine, like not that opera singing is feminine, but you know what I mean? In the expression of what would be traditionally described historically in things like the Cabalion. So people are like, you're genderizing. I'm not. These are like old school ways of, I mean, in all of nature, there is masculine and feminine. And so I, I just think it's fascinating when you are both an opera singer and working in construction. Like that is such a beautiful to be able to hold both. But was it an integrative, an integrative hold of both, or was it an extreme hold of both? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think it was a, it was, a, it was like an exploration. To be honest, like I was trying to find my place. You know, I was trying to find what what was truly me because you know, growing up as a kid, I think I looking back now, knowing what I know now. I actually sort of displayed a lot of characteristics of like, uh, you know, a, a child that grew up without parents. So I kind of like mm. displayed like orphan like uh, characteristics in the sense that I didn't really feel like I had a home because both of my family seemed like they they were complete and whole on their own. And so I was looking out in my life through, you know, doing yoga, working construction, singing opera, riding a thousand cc motorcycle driving a mustang you yeah, know the like, mustang is awful but the rest <laughs> it's is there great I it's know. what you do in alberta right that's like uh, it's what like, year was the mustang too just to make it worse it was a 95 oh, the mustang. worst years <laughs> the worst years of mustang anyways yeah so keep going but you know that's that's that was my search at the time it was i yeah. was seeking a sense of integration of wholeness and and i was just doing it through these external means of of sort of like trying out everything that I could to find a sense of what, what is me and what's not me. Mm. And in, in that search, cause the, it start, how did it start out? You know, like obviously growing up, you're split between two homes. Are you living in both homes? Or are you full-time in one versus the other? So I was, I was full-time with my, with my mom and I would see my dad uh, and stepmom 
probably like once a month, maybe twice if, if things, you know, weren't, weren't crazy. And then when did you start, uh, like walk us through how you go from that to like from high school to what's beyond that? Cause you played hockey too. And- yeah. 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 I mean, I, I played hockey, you know, growing up, that was like what you do in Alberta. Yeah, and, great. um, you know, I graduated high school in 2001, I don't know why I just gave that out, but people can, it doesn't really matter. No. Uh, there You'll you get go. a senior's discount. At right. Restaurants now. <laughs> <Daddies>. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I graduated and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was, I was not an academic and I didn't really care about school. And so, um, you know, my stepdad got me a job in construction and I ended up, you know, I was 18 and I'll never forget. It was like February, uh, <laughs> the middle of February and I got sent to a gravel pit in Northern Alberta Oof. and outside of Camrose, Alberta in literally the middle of nowhere. And I was working the night shift and my first shift uh, was from 6 PM until 6 AM at night. And the very first night it was minus 48 with the wind chill. And I was just underprepared. And so everybody is underprepared for my yeah, 48. Yeah. And so it was just like, it was, you know, I was just going with what people were giving me, you know, like my stepdad hooked me up with that job. I hated it. I was miserable. You know, I talked to my father and he was like, you should explore music. You should explore what you're passionate about. And so I followed that. And, you know, my, my father at the time was working for the government, um, the government of Canada. And he was also in the chorus for the Edmonton opera. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll go check this out. I took some singing lessons, you know, found out that I was, I was decent at it. I had a good voice and I started to pursue that. So I went and learned the basics in, in music and started to educate myself on what it would look like for me to potentially pursue a music career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then you did. And then I did. And then I, yeah, I auditioned. I got into a university. I, um, you know, was fortunate enough to get a degree in, in music and opera, for, opera performance major. What a major that is. Like literally <laughs> zero fucking use ever for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. If you don't become a professional opera singer, you just become a great singer. Yeah. In yeah, public domains when you're with friends. That's pretty much it. Yeah. So I heard you do that every once in a while when yep. Sam Smith is on and I'm like, calm down over yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and you know, that, that kind of like led me on a journey. I got, I was fortunate enough to go and perform in like China and the Czech Republic and Italy and Germany, uh, a little bit in France and New York and Toronto and with the Vancouver Symphony. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to go and, and sort of like try out this career and find that I didn't, I didn't, you know, it wasn't really for me. It was like one of those things that it, mm. it's like you go and get the degree. It's just like anything else, you know, it's just like anyone else can go do a degree in engineering or law and start doing the career and just be like, this is shit. You know, like, I hate this. I hate the, <laughs> I hate the lifestyle. I think the people are dramatic. And I, I just, this, this, this isn't for me. Like, this isn't real life. And I don't, and it's not what I'm looking to do in the world. And I think the biggest moment for me was that, I remember coming off of stage one night after performing and uh, this group came up to me and they were just sort of chatting with me about what I had just performed. And this one woman said, you know, I, I really appreciate, um, you know, the, the, the song that you just sang and it really hit me. It touched me. And, you know, I like, I almost cried and da, da, da. And I was like, Oh, thank you. And I walked away from that experience 
just feeling like something fundamentally was missing from me to connect to joy in the work that I was doing. And mm. I realized that for me, I really wanted a more direct connection to the to the people that I would be working with. And I knew that there was something missing for me in the sense that like I was always up on stage and I was never really connecting with the people who were experiencing my art form. And so that, you know, later on would be fundamental into the work that I now do today in the world, which is working with people. Um, but it would, it would just be like this catalyst that would sort of like stick in and be like, oh yeah, there's something missing here. There's something missing from, uh, from how I'm like getting joy out of the work that I do in the world. It's fascinating because when you think about the, experience that you're having there of, I guess, you know, some sort of dissonance is brought forward to you in that now what someone has communicated to you a gap in your own experience yeah. that like they experience joy and a sense of touch, um, emotionally being touched from your music, but you wanted more of that within your own self-expression. And then I then, just because I know your relationship history, I then look at, okay, how's that true of everything? Right. Mm. Because you know, we are, you're not going to come on here and not talk about your relationship. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so not that you would hold back anyways. But when you look at that time, how are you relationally? Like, yeah. at, what is the evolution of this man of, of juxtapositions? What are the juxtapositions that you're taking relationally as we walk through the same journey? Yeah. So, you know, in, in my life, the, the duality was just strong, right? Like if you met me at that time, uh, on the outside, I had a great career going. I had, you know, what looked like a really solid relationship going. Um, I, you know, how old are you at this time? Uh, probably like late twenties. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Like probably like 27. Um, and, but behind the scenes for probably a few years, I was pretty miserable and, you know, I was, I was lying. I was unfaithful. Um, you know, I really was trying to seek a sense of validation and self-worth and fulfillment out of extracurricular, uh, activities in relationships and gain, you know, sort of seeking a lot of just seeking a lot of validation from women in specific. And it sort of came to a head, you know, where, where I was found out. And uh, everything sort of started to fall apart. I was already questioning the relationship. I was questioning, you know, how to sort of stop living this dual life. You know, I was questioning my career and everything just sort of fell apart all at once. So, you know, fortunately and unfortunately, like she found out that I had been unfaithful and the relationship ended and um, my career was sort of coming to a halt at that point. And, you know, because I had so much pride and because I had sort of, now I was abiding, now I look back and I can say that I was abiding by what I call the one rule of men, um, which is similar to like the rule of fight club, which is you don't talk about it, right? You don't mm -hmm. talk about what it's like to be a man who's being unfaithful. You don't talk about what it's like to be a man who's struggling, you know, with depression or trying to figure out what his next career move is or, um, you know, struggling with health issues, whatever that might be. You just, you just don't talk about it. And so I, yeah, we wait till we have to rather yeah. than we choose to. Right. And so I, yeah. I had to, like, I really had to. And, and so I bottomed out. I still tried to hold on to not telling people I moved all of my shit into storage and lived out of the back of my car 
for a few weeks because I was so stubborn and I like really was hiding from the world, hiding from my family, hiding from my friends. And, you know, eventually came to this place where I realized that, that in order for me to feel a sense of wholeness, I'm using my words today. I don't think I would have said this, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a decade ago, but I wouldn't have either. I've been like, yeah. listen, Cracker Jack. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck do you mean by wholeness? Yeah. yeah. You know, I think at the moment, like, I remember laying in the backseat of my car one night and I, you know, I had the blanket up over me and it's a 2007 Pontiac G5, right? It's like a little two door coupe. I mean, on a positive note, the Mustang's gone. Yes. That, that's but, a good thing. But you have a Pontiac G5. Yeah. So it's and like I'm, a Sunfire, but like basically it's yeah. a fancy Sunfire. Yeah. And I'm like six two. So being in the backseat is an uncomfortable place. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And life and is uncomfortable at that point. So, yeah. So this is just a great metaphor. Uh, it's also February again for some reason. Apparently, February is not a great month for me. <laughs> <laughs> Your rock bottom months you like to hit. That's scrape, scrape the, the the bottom of the floor. Yeah, and and I just you know I remember laying there and just I was looking out the window at at the stars and in a Walmart parking lot and thinking to myself like is you know is is this it like am I going to continue to hide and and it was one of the first times that I had even entertained the idea of not living, you know, of mm. taking my own life. And, and I, that scared me so much because I was like, I, I know that that's not the choice. You know, I know yeah. that that's not a path. And so what's happening for me that, that I'm, I'm hiding myself in such a way that I'm even considering that. And so it, it set me on this really different trajectory. Um, you know, thankfully, I had a mentor that was already in my life who who was very supportive, and I, I can talk about more more about that. But yeah, it's, it, that was really like a huge catalyst for me. That's a, I want to highlight that because I think for me, when I've been in the depths of shame or pain or both, because they're usually partners, I have had maybe a couple moments in my life where I've been so deep in shame that I've thought to myself. I understand why people take their lives. Like mm -hmm. I understand because I knew that, that I was in the darkness, my own darkness. And although I wasn't going to take my life, it was at, for the first time ever in my life, something that appeared as an option mm -hmm. that I never went down, but I sat in the space of that and thought, I get it. Like it's so easy to dissolve away. Yeah. But also, I think what is beautiful about that moment, and that might be hard for people to hear, but it was true for me. So this is just my truth is it was also that I had nothing to lose anymore. And then of course, if you hit another moment like that, which I have before, I, maybe it's been three or four times that that's happened in my life. I just realized that there's just other things that like everything shatters away so you can construct who you are truly. So you can give birth to who you truly are, not all the masks we've built, all the ways we've pretended and I think for men, it's, and and this could be true for anyone. I, I just think with the socialization that men have is when you are in the depths of your pain, you are often a prisoner within your own body because you don't have the words to self-express without, you know, we might tolerate aggression from men, not clean anger, aggression and sex as a way of expressing and connecting and maybe joy. Mm -hmm. But but other than that, in your experience, are those really the emotions that we sort of are, you know, allowed to feel or 
Yeah, you know, I think having worked with men now for a long, a long time, it the the thing that I've noticed is that well, first and foremost, I just want to say, you know, I can't remember who said it, but someone said, you know, suicide is the ultimate form of self destruction, and and it really is that the the sort of like endpoint, and we have to realize that many of us try and self destruct, and we try and self destruct because we have become addicted to suppressive and repressive emotions like shame and guilt, right? When we have, when we look at our core emotional body, you know, it, it's consisted of things like happiness and joy and sadness and, you yeah. know, the, the core emotion, anger, anger, right? Things like shame and uh, shame and guilt, they are suppressive and repressive emotions. Yeah. But some of us, rather than being addicted to sex or gambling or whatever, what we're actually addicted to is shame. And we're addicted to the experience of having shame come in to our emotional body and push down the other emotions. Yeah. And, and so, and that is unfortunately, you know, how many of us men have been conditioned, right? We grew up in environments that say, you know, men, real men don't cry, boys don't cry, like fucking man up, don't be such a pussy. And what that teaches a lot of, a lot of guys is you should suppress those core emotions. And unfortunately, over time, if they're not taught how to do that, it all that they have, the only tools that they really have is is to start to self-destruct. And, you know, for me, you know, that was kind of the case. I I didn't I hadn't really been taught. And this isn't any fault to my parents. You know, like I've we've (laughs) we have a great relationship now for the most part. You know, I hadn't really learned and, and, and been taught and taught myself how to deal with the complex emotions that I had felt as a kid, as a teenager, and as a young adult. And and so because of that, I just use this external validation to try and plug the holes of of my soul or of my emotional body uh, and try and get a sense of joy and try and get a sense of happiness because I was so addicted to doing things and and engaging in behaviors that were shame producing so that I could numb out and mm. you know that was that was my escape mechanism and, and having worked with a lot of people now I see that escape mechanism happening over and over and over again it's a very systemic issue in, in our culture yeah and do you like when you look back then at your experience of your partner at that time who you sort of watch the impact of your choices right and any partner in the future too, that you experience the impact of your choices. And I remember for me, and I want to hear your side of this, um, but for me, some of the most transformative moments of my life are when a woman has held up the truth of who I am. Mm. And I remember I was dating this woman who she said to me one day, who you think you are is different than who you are, than how the world experiences you. And I was like, huh, what? No, but it was one of those obvious truths that hit me so deep where I went into shame because I had this new level of awareness. And I was say to people, if you're holding on to a truth of how someone's being experienced by the world, remember those are often the greatest gifts to invitations to actually come back into our own integrity. Cause we, we don't even know what we don't know. Sometimes we're so entrenched in patterns like addictions to shame and addictions to sex and addictions to uh, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, a way to escape these core feelings, these feelings that you were never taught how to actually express. Mm. And when I finally came face to face with the impact of my choices on someone else's experience, it was like a come to Jesus moment of like, 
hey, who do you actually want to be? Because I saw that there was now a gap between who I actually did want to be, but who I was actually being. I didn't know that there was a space between those two. I was living in the beautiful comfort of naivety. That was, oof, I love ignorance is bliss. Let me just, <laughs> but you can't undo a, a lightning bolt of awareness. You can't yeah. pretend you don't know. And if you try to, you'll just want to drink tequila. Yeah. You know, so for you were those, because it sounds like a lot of your experiences where you were invited back into your own healthy masculinity, uh, you know, were relational. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, I think for me, in in that specific relationship, I did feel seen, but it was part of the it was actually part of the problem for me, in the sense that I didn't know how to be whole. I didn't know how to feel complete. I didn't know how to be integrated. And so just the just the like slight glimmer or even thought of being seen by uh, a partner at my core was terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the shadow it, within me did everything in its power to start to sabotage it, right? To be like, no, that can't be true because I only knew duality. I only knew, you know, living this, this life of separation. And so when someone was trying to love me in a way that was try that was, that was loving me as if I was complete, the the pain in me and the hurt in me and the shadow in me was like no absolutely not like i i can't allow that to happen and so you know but but out of that came my greatest healing because it, it actually put me on a path of learning how to integrate those parts that were at, uh, at in opposition right and so and, and i've seen this time and time again is like we we sometimes not always have to have to lose everything to start to rebuild. We sometimes mm -hmm. have to hit bottom in order for things to get better. That's not always the case. But for me, I had that story that I certainly wasn't going to get better until I had bottomed out. And it was somewhere back there in like the recesses of my unconscious mind. Um, but yeah, it was definitely true for me. Yeah, to think that we miss all the slight nudges of the universe and wait to get a cosmic two by four to the head. <laughs> you know, it's a, a Alan Watts, you know, you and I have a, a love for him. And I love how he talks about humans think we have to experience deep pain to awaken. But all you have to do is decide. And you could just decide right now you don't you your life can just be mildly uncomfortable. Yeah. And I find the more you get into truth, whatever that means for you, your own self-expression, the more you start to feel the deviations from truth. So when you get into the space where you actually feel free and you actually feel like you are, it sounds so esoteric, but this idea of like being in alignment or in self-expression or in, this is the authentic truth. Like I'm actually hurting right now instead of pretending everything's fine. Mm. The more you are actually living in that, you never want to deviate ever again. The pain of deviation is too, is too great. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, I think, what, what you're talking about is is really important like there's i always look at like the authentic self as being truth right like mm. when when we are being authentic when we're living authentic speaking authentically acting authentically it's it's our true it's our truest self coming forward right it's our truest form of self-expression but when we are acting in a way that is inauthentic it feels like a lie. And oftentimes we are lying. It uh, is a lie. In, in order to make sometimes that whole life is an expression of a lie. Totally. And and for me, that was that was the catch, right? That was the that was the work is that the majority of 
who I was at that time had sort of become this this big lie. And so it was about, you know, getting back into a space of truth and authenticity. I found for me that invitation happening in my late 20s as well. It actually took me many years. I mean, it still happens in subtle ways. And I'll never say I know because then the universe will teach me very quickly that I don't. I acknowledge always the student. But what I found is that what was my truth and what was my integrity continued to be cleaned up. Like mm-hmm. I didn't all of a sudden, you know, cause I found, I think we have similar stories in this way. That's probably why we relate so well together is that I, I could be seen as being okay from the outside because when my relationship ended and I was in internally in total disarray and destruction, I then could still be celebrated and be seen as okay because I could date and hook up with women and then be celebrated within the, the masculine circles because that's a level of status. And yeah. so no one would actually see what was really going on within me, which was, I'm scared, I'm sad, I'm grieving, I don't have any shit figured out. And, but I'm good on the outside. I'm charming, I'm funny, you know, all these, but internally I was so afraid of being seen. So for me, similar thing, like, the the idea of a woman actually loving me i mean those ones i i didn't have chemistry with uh, they were in the wrong place i wasn't ready for a relationship i had all the fucking shadow tricks in the world <laughs> you know that's why i think i can call them out so easily because i was the master of of all the mm-hmm. excuses of all mm-hmm. the things and in your i mean i at least in my experience of your journey your experience of your own journey is it might be different is that that was a i continued to watch that unfold because i was there the the day of birth of mantox yeah yeah i mean that's you know i think that's one of the the gifts and the opportunities is that you know out of like our pain is purpose yeah. you know like uh, we really can find a sense of purpose from within that within that pain and that was what birthed Mantox into existence. You know, I um, I spent a few years with a mentor of mine who, in earlier on in life, he had studied Jungian psychology with Carl Jung and some of his pupils. Um, I called him my little white Yoda. His name was Bernard, and he was like this eighty year old guy. And and it really like opened my, <laughs> my eyes. Little white Yoda. Yeah, little yeah. white Yoda. Uh, he was like this little French Canadian guy who just always dropped wisdom bombs where you just sort of like paused and looked at him like, are you a real thing? Like, are you <laughs> are, are you a recording of like positive affirmations or like are you a real thing? <laughs> are you Alan Watts re-embodied? Yeah, 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 yeah. But, you know, it sent me on this journey. It, it healed me. You know, I, I found mentorship and guidance. And, you know, I learned all about the psyche and the shadow and consciousness, but, but it didn't, it, it helped me, but it didn't mean that my journey of healing was done. You know, I, years later, I would start man talks and I would still deal with some of the remnants, you know, of still having parts of my past be out of alignment and be out of integrity because, you know, it, it does take time. I think that's one of the important things is often we want our our healing journey to happen in an instant. You know, like we want our childhood trauma to be fixed now and we don't want it to have any impacts in our life and we don't want it to have any um, negative impacts on our relationship or our career. And it's so easy to look at things like childhood trauma or neglect or abandonment and just be like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know, I've talked about it once or twice. I've worked through it. I'm good. I did an ayahuasca ceremony. We're all good now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all good. It won't show up again. Yeah. Yeah. 
until next week. Till till I get triggered and I because I haven't done the work while I'm triggered. Yeah. You know, that's such a different I mean, I think one of the most common things that you and I both hear uh is is that once a cheater, always a cheater. You know, like once infidelity, like because infidelity itself can be uh obviously a form of self sabotage. Mm -hmm. a way of feeling excitement connection exhilaration and i you know i want to honor that you it's so easy to turn away and to go into the shame core and the shame cycle of not acknowledging truths of who we are Mm -hmm. but i watched you walk through that journey of owning who you were and how you showed up and actually through relationship heal a lot of that with your wonderful partner of just like really stepping into that space of, of like looking back at who you were before this relationship. Yeah. I mean, it it was hard work. I'm not, I'm not sure what the, what the question is in there, but I will agree with that. And, but like, I think in the, in the, sorry, the question being, because that's such a thought that you can't take something that is so shame because the, the cheater is always thought to be the villain. Yeah. I see what you say. I mean, it's, it, it's it's true and you know that that sentiment of like once a cheater always a cheater is you know it's it's a belief based on pain mm-hmm. and and i think we can all understand that you know like when we get hurt when we get betrayed when we experience that betrayal but that mentality also needs to be healed within the person who's putting that out into the world Right. If you believe once a cheater, always a cheater, it's like, well, that's your work to do. Right. Like that's your healing to do. I think for me, you know, I, I had heard that saying and, and my work was, um, you know, to not buy into that sentiment. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of guys hear that and they're like, all right, fuck it. This I is guess just like, who I am. It's just who I am. Like maybe I'm not meant to be in a monogamous relationship, even though they have really wanted to, you know, find a partner get married, you know, do the kid thing. And they've, they've actually really yearned and craved for that. But, but they continually hear this narrative and this dialogue of like, once a cheater, always a cheater. And so they don't go any further. They just, they just buy into it and they don't do the hard work. And I think for me, I wanted to reject that. You know, I almost like kind of wanted to prove that wrong. Yeah. Um, you and use uh, that as energy again. for Yeah. At first it was, at first it was a bit challenging, but yeah, I mean, I use that as the, as you said, like as the energy of transformation to propel me forward to be like, no, like I actually don't even need to be a part of that story. Like I don't need to be a part of that story. And, and you know, what a different story is born from that. Yeah. And it's like, have I cheated? Yes. Was I, you know, was I unfaithful at some point in my life? Absolutely. And that man does not need to be the man that I, that I am until my grave. You know, that sort of absolutist thinking is, is very challenging and very detrimental. And it's almost always coming from a place of hurt. Yes. 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 I mean, I don't know how it can't be. Yeah. I mean, even for me to buy into that story, to believe like, yeah, once I've cheated, I'm always a cheater would be me buying into shame. It would be me being like, yep, Shame wins. I'm just always going to be this way. And I can never really achieve and attain that which I ultimately know I'm worthy of. Right. Mm. Cause I know I'm worthy. That's on the of other it. side of it. Yeah. 
It's like, you know, our, our highest, best, truest self knows that it's worthy of a loving mm-hmm. co- relationship. If, if we want a loving, committed relationship, we want a loving, monogamous relationship, I know that I am worthy of that, but there's things that are in the way. And so part of my work is to look at what's in the, sh- what's in the quote unquote shadow that is getting in the way from from me moving towards that what beliefs what stories are getting in the way and and that's a big part of the work i'm so happy that you explained all that through for people because i think to hear from someone who has been somewhere before and is in such a different place now one thing for me to talk about but totally different for you to say like fuck no change is possible who do you want to be how do you want to show up can you make this turn it into purposeful intentional relationship connective power rather than disconnective sabotaging shadow power and i think for the interest of clarity i want to point out he has not been unfaithful in this relationship yeah like yeah. anyone listening they're like what no <laughs> that, let's point that out but I, but i got to watch the like loving mirror that vienna provides of like hey i love you so much and you are so worthy of this wholeness mm-hmm. of this of all parts of you being held. And I saw that vice versa. I continue to see that. And I love it. It's like so beautiful to watch the unfolding, but also how you have, and you've inspired me continuously. I mean, that's why we're good friends, but this like continuous expansion into what integrity deepens, how it deepens to be, how do you want to be remembered? What does that mean for you? And um, I'm really inspired by how you live your life and how you show up. So a moment of gratitude. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think it's, it's, um, it's an incredible feeling to be on the other side of something, you know, and uh, like someone, someone, I think it was actually, I think it was my dad, him and I were having a conversation and we were talking about how much my, my life has changed in like the last six years. We, you know, I got married earlier on this year and, um, you know, Vienna and I just got back from our honeymoon last week and, yeah, it was amazing. and, and him and I were chatting about it and he, he said, he said something that really landed with me. He said, you know, I haven't quite met or, or seen or witnessed someone else that has the ability to adapt to change in the way that you do. And he said, I, and, and him and I were having an open conversation about some stuff that's happening in our family. And he said, how he actually asked me for advice. He said, how is it that you deal with change so well? And mm. I, and I said, well, I let, I let the change change me. I stop resisting the change, you know, like when change shows up in our life, you know, if we get caught being unfaithful, if we're lying to our partner, if we're in a shitty relationship that we know isn't good for us, but we're staying there anyway, because it's what we know, we're actually resisting the change. We're not letting the change inform our being. We're not letting the change inform our decisions. And and sometimes that's what we need to do. You know, I think Bruce Lee said, be like water, right? It's like we need to actually allow the change to inform who we are rather than looking at the problem and saying, how do I change to solve this problem? And and we sort of turn it on its head. Mm. This rather than resisting what's happening, surrender to what's happening and then trust its integration. Yeah, we start to allow what we know is true and we start to allow that change to inform the way that we interact with people. I think that's the classic sort of, you know, the simplistic nature of something like Abraham Hicks teachings that like go with the flow of the river, go with the flow of the water, stop trying to swim upstream. And that doesn't have to be woo-woo shit. You don't have to like hit a joint to get that. It can literally be like, 
what am I resisting? What have I not integrated? What have I not accepted? I mean, when you actually connect to the truth of your life, you know, I see this all the time where someone will be like making excuses for, you know, uh, a guy's been cheating on a chick and there's like photographic evidence and video and they're like, no, but he said it was just a bad angle and he was just delivering pizza and it never actually, you know, and they have all the excuses in the world for not connecting to the truth. And I think, you know, one of the most powerful things I learned and and continue to learn is that when you are not acknowledging the truths of your life, then you are not on solid ground. You mm-hmm. live in a world where lies are the truth. And if you live in a world where lies are the truth, then you can't trust yourself. You know, when you're not like even a simple one, how we show up in conflict. Am I defensive? Do I get angry? Do I shut down? Can I be hurtful? If you can't actually accept that you're always part of the dance in all relationships, then you will be living in a world where lies are the truth. And fuck that. Because if you can't, if you are in a world where you are the victim of everything, you can't change your life. And, you know, you hear that a lot where someone says like, I'm an empath. And, you know, I get taken advantage of. And I'm like, you don't have boundaries and you're codependent. And that's okay. That's not mean. That's just the truth. And we can be empathic, but we should be boundaried around our empathy. You know, just because you can feel other people's feelings doesn't mean you should. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, it, I mean, it's a, it's a really good point. I think, like, one of the things that, um, you know, Carl Jung said in a long, long time ago, he says, as far as, far as we can discern the sole purpose of human existence is to kindle a light in the darkness of mere being. And I think, I think this is like really the work that you and I are talking about. And it's, it's, I mean, it's the work that I do now with shadow work. It's that I think the work that you teach and talk about, it's that we, we start to look into the places of our minds, of our hearts, of our souls. And we start to look at the parts that, that feel broken, that feel inauthentic, that feel, um, like they don't belong. And we start to bring light into those spaces and we stop resisting, uh, we stop resisting the change that we know to be true, you know, and we, and we start mm-hmm. to surrender just a little bit more to the change that we know is possible. And, and that's really, that's really like what the heart and soul of real transformation is all about is that, is that we see the parts of ourself that, that are hurting or that need to be healed, that feel rejected, that feel displaced. And we start to bring love and compassion and some sense of okayness back into those places so that that we can start to heal. We can bring light back into the darkness. So let's talk about that. You know, I, I, and let's talk about this idea of shadow. Because for a lot of people, they're like, yeah, I have a shadow when the sun's out. There's a I look over and I was like, whoop, shit, there I am. If you don't have one, you get a little fucking freaked out. You know, I think that's a sign that you're dead. But yeah, the, be, be yeah, that's not a good sign. But and the gopher, when they see it, it means spring's coming. True. Um, so, so how would you define the shadow? And what other m- language might it have in other forms of psychology or anything like that, or even just general rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, so Jung, I mean, I'll, I'll just, the simplest way I can put it is that the shadow is that which we have disowned, turned away from, or tried to avoid and neglect. So that can be psychologically, that can be emotionally, right? We might try and avoid 
anxiety. That's a big one that I see in modern culture, right? A lot of people are trying to avoid their anxiety, turn away from it, disown it. And that always leads to it growing, right? So that's the easiest way I can put the shadow. But to kind of give a little bit more in depth of an answer, like Jung created, not created, but he broke it down as like, we have the conscious mind, we have the subconscious mind, and we have the unconscious mind. And if you've ever seen the big iceberg, the picture of the iceberg, the conscious mind is the part sticking out above the water. So that's the part that we access all the time. The subconscious mind is kind of like if you're standing at the edge of the iceberg, you can look down into the water and you can see some of the iceberg underneath the water. And then the unconscious mind is everything that's like in the darkness, right? So for many people, they believe that the, that the shadow is, is a large part of the unconscious mind. And I, I like to think of it as imagine that you are sitting at a giant round table, right? Like I like to, I like to think of like King Arthur, right? So you're sitting at a giant round table and you or your transcended self, the, the truest version of you is sitting in one place Mm -hmm. and you're looking out at the rest of the table. And on one side are all the parts of yourself that you like. So you have your joy, you have your good smile, you have your, you know, your charisma. I like that incredible. side of the table. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you're, I like that beer with that side of the table. <laughs> your good humor, that's all on the one side of the table, right? So this would be your personality that you try and project out into the world. Mm. And it's the internal personality of your psyche that you interact with on a regular basis. On the other side of the table is the shadow of your psyche. This is where the inner critic sits. It's where anxiety sits, depression, sabotage, the victim. That's that's the other side. And so for many people, because they don't interact with these sides of the table, these parts have been given a lot of power. They've been given a lot of free will to roam and reign and do whatever they want, right? So I like to think of the the shadow side of the table as like sometimes little kids, right? So, But like mischievous little shits. Yeah, you can, yeah, exactly. They're not like the kid who's like, Hey, thank you, please. No, it's, They're it's like, like the kid, yeah. it's like the kid at the kid at like the grocery store, like a Safeway that's like pulling the little yogurt things off the <laughs> yeah. shelf and just fucking smashing fucker. them on the ground. I'm thinking about that kid from uh, Wedding Crashers, where he's like, "Make me a bicycle clown." That little, I will <laughs> get a little. I'm gonna scissor kick you in the head, Grandpa. <laughs> it's so good. Uh. Um, so you know what what happens when we ignore problem child right like what happens when we ignore kids who are really wanting attention yeah they get louder and louder and louder they get more out of control they try and sabotage more and more destructive, yeah more they're more destructive and so this is true of the shadow as well right if we don't pay attention to and try and understand the inner critic it's going to get to the point where it's almost debilitating for us because it's so loud and detrimental and uh, just cutting us down on a regular basis, right? So we need to be able to pay attention to these parts. So I think maybe I'll just pause there because I know I just uh, like sort of laid out a lot about what the shadow is. Yeah, marinate in that, people. Pull over, rewind 60 seconds, go back. So if I could translate that maybe to a different way of being or seeing of it, could it be that on the shadow side is um, the emotions we suppress and then come out because you know that uh, you said earlier that when we suppress core emotions like anger, sadness, grief, that they become anxiety and depression. 
that work mm-hmm. is from AEDP. You could read uh, Hillary Jacobs Endel's been on the podcast. Why, uh, her book called "It's Not Always Depression" walks through that scientific cycle that, mm-hmm. that's very evidence based. So the shadow is is the n- not looking at the parts we don't like. Yeah. Or yeah. and or are afraid of. It's the unconscious parts that are hidden from us. The shadow is the the parts that we don't want to look at. So it's unconscious. It's the parts that we want to hide. Um, and the the kicker of it all mm-hmm. is that the shadow can also be the parts of us that we see as potential. So a lot of our a lot of our natural and innate potential can get locked up in the shadow and sort of tangled up with with the shitstorm because we're afraid of it. Yeah, because we're afraid of it. Or, you know, like, maybe we grew up in a household where we had an, a, a verbally abusive parent, you know, that that told us that we were a stupid piece of shit. And so, you know, as a kid, we have no mental def- defenses to that. And so we take that as a truth, right? We hear our dad or our mom saying, like, you're you're stupid, you're not smart enough, or some version of that. And we take that as truth. And what happens is a part of our intellectual potential gets taken and stored in the shadow. And so a really important piece is that once we start to look at the shadow, face the inner critic, set boundaries with these parts, you know, understand them, face boundaries, uh, set boundaries with them, we actually start to actualize more of our potential simply because we're looking at the parts of ourselves that we've uh, unconsciously don't know about or that we have consciously rejected. So how do we begin, you know, cause I think of my own journey down that path and still continuing to unfold the parts that I don't like or, or show themselves only in high pressure or things like that. I think about turning towards them and like some of the truths when they've been mirrored back to me, you know, who you actually are and then actually accepting that truth and then mm-hmm. looking at why. And then how do I actually have a healthy expression of the the same skill set or the same desire or whatever it is? So how would someone begin that journey? And, and then how do you actually start to integrate that? Mm. I mean, welcome to a whole other episode, I'm sure. But, yeah. but, but simply put, how could you do yeah. that? I mean, I think the first thing that we need to know, and I there's a guy who I love, you know, he's my... Uh, unintentional mentor. His name is Anthony DeMello, and he wrote a book called Awareness. And in the beginning, he describes, he talks about spirituality. He says that, you know, spirituality is waking up. And the first rule of spirituality is knowing that you don't want to wake up. Mm -hmm. And I think the first rule of shadow work is knowing that your shadow does not want to be seen. You know, you have to know that there's resistance. And so the the main piece is cultivating a sense of self-reflection of being able to look at specifically your reactivity and specifically starting to look at what are you reactive to emotionally? What are you reactive to intellectually? What do you want to naturally avoid in your relationship, right? Maybe you have a partner who wants to uh, explore something emotionally or sexually or physically, or they want to explore an, an adventure. And every time that they bring it up, you react to it in a really like vicious, cutting, condescending kind of way. And that reactivity is pointing to a part of yourself that you're not wanting to look at or you're not wanting your partner to see. Maybe you have an insecurity that you're not wanting your partner to see. So you cut them down instead. So the main piece, just to kind of summarize, is we need to cultivate a sense of awareness or self-reflection. And we need to start to train ourselves in the art form 
of looking at our reactivity and understanding why we're getting reactive, whether it's at work or with our kids or with our family members, which is a really good one, yeah. <laughs> or or specifically with our partner. Oh, amen to that. Like yeah. all reactivity is born from family relationships, really. You know, of course, there is some that can be um, created and cultivated through life experience in our childhood and our teens through people we don't know. But man, so much of our family system is such a birthplace. I, I find that for me, and, and at least in the work I've done, that a lot of the reactivity, the shadow, undealt with shadow stuff is so inherited because it, mm-hmm. it just gets unconsciously transmitted through behaviors or a lack thereof to the next generation. Yeah, I mean, this is where I can like hear Vienna's voice in my head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <correct. laughs> and this is where she talks about, this is where, she, you know, she's brilliant. She talks about the path of repetition or the path of opposition, right? So if we grew up with a, a parent who was very reactive with anger, let's say, and they blew up and that was just sort of like the mode of operation and they taught us that that was okay, uh, we might repeat that pattern. Or we might see their anger as something that was so scarring for us and so damaging for us that we say, I'm never going to do that. So we get into a relationship and we never give our anger a space Mm -hmm. to actually have a voice. And so we allow people to walk all over us. We don't set boundaries. We have porous boundaries. And, and we move into the path of opposition. So this is why looking at our reactivity is, is like so valuable. Yeah. And to be able to draw, like I find with people that they, often don't even know what matters to them, what values they have, what needs they have, because in their childhood, they didn't learn how to have them or get to have them or no one was around to fucking listen anyways, if they had them. And so like part of that adulting work of being like, who actually am I? If I didn't learn all the things I learned, as you talked about in the unconscious of like, if I actually looked at my whole life experience and what culture I grew up and what media I, I swallowed, like all of these things that we cultivate and create a self from that sometimes isn't 99% of the time is not who we are. I remember listening to the spiritual teacher who said that at the moment of total loss, you are, you are flung back into yourself, that you are actually more embodied than you've ever been, mm-hmm. even though it feels terrifying and like, that rock bottom feeling of like, where am I? Who am I? What a beautiful question to begin to postulate. Like, yeah. who am I really? I could, I mean, I can give people questions to dig into. Like maybe we can give them in the give them. notes or. Yeah. You can, you can even say some, do you have some? All right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll get, I'll, I'll lay it on them. So for the listeners that are out there, obviously if you're driving, don't close your eyes, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, if you're pull sitting, over park. Yeah, pull over and park. Uh, if you're sitting and listening to this, then you can close your eyes and just take a few deep breaths. Uh, I'm going to ask you questions in first person. So it's as if you are answer, asking them. And all you have to do is fill in the blank. It's kind of like psychological mad libs. <laughs> <laughs> mad libs. <laughs> so deep breath in, deep breath out. So what I tend to keep in the dark about myself is... What I tend to keep in the dark about myself is all you have to do is respond and answer. What I least want others to know about me is the emotions that I am least comfortable with are the emotions I am least comfortable with are 
the emotions that I tend to hide in my relationships are the thought of expressing these emotions feels the thought of expressing these emotions feels I'm worried that my partner would think and maybe we'll just pause there and that should Damn. give them that should give them a little bit of insight into just like uh, some emotional uh, literacy is like some what's what's blocking them in in their relationship a little bit yeah and i i think some qualifiers for that one you might be afraid of your answers mm-hmm. to say the first thing that comes to you because most of us live in our heads and we're like is that the right answer listen <laughs> retiring perfectionists let <laughs> let the whatever comes come because it, it will all make sense as you yeah. begin to take more time into that well, I mean, so as we sort of welcome people into that space of understanding the things they might be afraid of, what are some tools that they can use in order to turn towards these things? Like some ways, like, are there any books that you recommend? I, I think you said awareness. Um, yeah, awareness by, by Anthony DeMello is a great book. I think any sort of like mindfulness and meditation practice is always a good one. Um I found breath work to be a really Oof, powerful me tool. too. Like a really, really powerful. It's new to tool. me and I feel like um there's it's weird if I have anxiety or something and I do those like you know, I, I we had Sam Skelly on the podcast too. So we did some of her pause breath breath work. And whenever I do that, uh just even like thirty seconds of it, it's mm-hmm. it's crazy the things that start to come up from breath work. I feel like breath work is like the new everything <laughs> it feels yeah, like I mean, it. there's there's a there's a ton of power behind that but i think that one's a good one because it can breath work can naturally access some of like the stagnant or stuck uh emotions that are within our emotional body so that can be a good one but honestly like i think just looking at some of the things that you naturally get reactive to and if you're not too sure uh, my challenge for you if you want to embark on the challenge is to go ask three or four of the closest people in your life what you normally get reactive about Mm. and ask them to be just brilliantly and brutally honest with you. And and hopefully they will. And it'll give you uh, an insight into maybe what insecurities are hiding or, you know, what emotions you're uncomfortable with and and start to face them. So I think those are some resources to, to start to dig into. Beautiful. Well, I think for people that they're like, that's, that's good. I think we're, like I just found out some things about myself that I'm a little afraid of. That's okay. You know, it always starts with this, like, are you willing to turn towards your own stuff with compassion and empathy? Mm-hmm. Like the parts that we reject of ourselves that have been rejected through society or families, whatever it is, if we continue to reject them, we can never accept those parts in other people anyways. So it's like, you know, this always the work begins within, begins with this turning towards the s- most fearful parts of us that we have shame about that we're mm-hmm. that we're afraid of that when we do that we can turn towards those parts of other people and i i mean relationships are such a beautiful way to start to experience acceptance and love and receive love oh my god that's yeah what a gift that well, and, is and i think what you know the the beautiful thing is that with things like you know anxiety is such a great 
uh, like sort of perfect example of how the shadow operates, right? Like when we try and reject our anxiety, it grows stronger. Mm. When we try and run from our anxiety or hide from it, it gets bigger. And the same is true with the shadow, right? When we try and reject or ignore shame, it just grows. Same with the inner critic, right? When we try and avoid the inner critic. And so kind of starting to just slowly, to the best of our ability, start to turn towards what is our, you know, what does my inner critic sound like? When does it show up? You know, what is it normally talking about? Who does, this is a big one. Who does my inner critic remind me of? Oh, yeah. Right. For me, you know, like my inner critic was my stepdad. And it was, it, it was alarming when I started to connect the dots between what my inner critic sounded like and what my stepdad used to say to me as a kid. And I was like, holy shit. So just some of those pieces, you know, for people to start to turn towards these parts. Um, there are some great books out there that, you know, maybe I can, I can give you uh, offline to like put in the show notes. Um, but yeah, yeah, shadow work. So sweet. I love it. <laughs> Well, Connor Beaton, where do people find you? Thank you, by the way, for being on the show today and sharing all of your beautiful wisdom and heart and knowledge. And I love you. And tell me, tell them where to find you. Cause I know I can text you, but for other people, <laughs> they can't do that. You asked me for me to get out my phone. Yeah. Phone. Right. All of a sudden they'll be like, loved your shadow work podcast. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, well, first off, thanks again for having me on the show. I always love jamming with you and I love you too, buddy. Uh, and people can go to connorbeaton.com and check out some of the work that I'm doing there. We've got, you know, men's weekends coming up next year. You know, Vienna and I are doing a uh, couple's workshops next year. Uh, but the easiest way is to follow me on the gram, uh, which is at man talks, just as it's spelled, just as it sounds, man talks. Uh, and yeah, feel free to reach out and let me know if this podcast landed for you and how your, how your homework went. <laughs> yeah. Right. I can't wait to hear that too. Please <laughs> share it, tag of, it, all of the things. Um, my friend, thanks so much for being here.